0: So as um, we've been doing the last few mornings, I'll continue to begin with some reflections on on what it means to be secular. Although I've looked at it very much in terms of the contemporary understanding of the idea, referring to people like Charles Taylor and so on, I think it's also... Um, the case that many features of what the Buddha was doing in the 5th century BC was likewise a kind of secular um, uh, response or critique of um, much of the kind of society that was in place at his time. And perhaps one of the, the strongest in- indicators of this is the Buddha's emphasis on becoming self-reliant. There's a very famous passage at the end, uh, shortly before he dies, really, where he says uh, to Ananda that you should be islands to yourselves with no other refuge, that yourself is your refuge, he says. And uh, although the English muddies that a bit with this idea of be an island unto yourself. The Pali simply says Atta Deepa Saranam. Atta, self. The same Atta as in Atman. Atta, self, deeper, island, Saranam, refuge. And this to me is quite... Remarkable, given the context of those times. Um, He does seem to be addressing um, uh, a a condition where people were becoming less and less um, maybe members of a rural agricultural community, very much working the land in touch with nature, beginning to step away from that, uh, to leave home, again a very important trope, within early Buddhism uh, often finding themselves supported by and interacting with the, the new emerging urban cultures of the day and then with this emphasis to become independent to become islands to yourself or land um, it could be translated either way the Pali word deeper means both island and land <laughs> It's a bit like the bark of a tree and the bark of a dog. Same word, totally different meanings. Um, And also, of course, as we'll come back probably later, this emphasis the Buddha has on the one who has has entered the stream of the eightfold path has become a-parapachya, has become independent of others in the teaching. Again, this emphasis on independence, this emphasis on self-reliance, this emphasis on becoming an island. These are possibly sort of precursors of Taylor's idea of a buffered self, a self that's somehow closed off, um, autonomous, uh, protected in some way. So it's not just, therefore, something to do with modernity, although I think that the way that this secularity has come to uh, characterise our lives is probably of quite a different order to how it might have been at the Buddhist time, but you can certainly still pick up glimmers of that. And I wonder, in fact, whether one of the reasons why Um, we find ourselves uh, drawn to Buddhist teaching is because it does seem to affirm um, a kind of individuality, a kind of um, autonomy of the person, rather than um, uh, devoting oneself to a god or to some authority figure uh, and somehow uh, subordinating one's individuality to some greater good or greater whole. And possibly, you know, the way in which um, uh, we deal with monasticism, and I want to pick up on a question that we already looked at a bit yesterday. Um, The question was, in a secular Buddhism, what would be the role of monasticism? I think that's a very important question, actually. And, but before answering it, I think we first need to step back and say, well, what is the role of monasticism, um, you know, independently of secular approaches? What, does, what is it that's so powerful about uh, the monastic tradition? And I think one of the functions that monasticism has performed... Um, certainly in Buddhism, I'm not going to comment on Christianity at this point, is that monasticism is in a way a symbol of a higher time. In other words, when you go to a monastery, let's say you go to Amaravati uh, here in Hertfordshire, you'll go to a place where um, everything is is, is highly ritualised, and you enter into a space where basically things have not really changed very much over hundreds of years the monastic form um, goes back um, to probably the time of the Buddha himself the monastic vows um, were designed according to circumstances in India in the 5th century BC and they haven't changed they're still the same they're not adapted. Uh, and there's a great emphasis in traditional Buddhist monasticism not to change things. So you, you, know, you still <coughs> live in Northern Europe, um, but you still follow the rains retreat as though you were living in India. It doesn't make much sense from a secular point of view. Um, and that is something that is not negotiable. So you do your rains retreat when it's not raining. Uh, it would make more sense to do the rains retreat during the winter. But no, you can't change that. And although, again, we, we might find that a little funny, I think it's actually pointing to something rather important. Uh, namely, the, the the these monastic institutions. Um, Uh, are not there in order just to provide people with the opportunity to practice more intensely. That might be the justification that you might hear. But in terms of their social function, um, they operate very much as uh, embodiments of a higher time or the Dharma, the timeless Dharma. So when you go to a monastery, Um, you find yourself in a very different kind of space. And a lot of people find that to be very restorative. A lot of people find that to be uh, a place where you can connect symbolically and ritually with what it is that you value most deeply. And there's a certain potency in that. Anyone who's... uh, Well, I'll talk about myself...
1: I'm very aware that when I go
0: into a monastery, I'm entering into another kind of zone. Um, Whether it be in England, or how it was when I went last year with Martin, we went back to Korea. And spent about a month, almost entirely, in monasteries in Korea, going from one to the other. And I find it very um, easy to slip back into that way of life, um, and to do so with great you know uh, sincerity and enjoyment, I like it. I like getting up in the morning at three am, well not in terribly, but I'm willing to do it for a while, <laughs> and attend the early morning service and do the chanting and the bowing. And in fact, Martine was saying to me if only your secular Buddhist friends could see you now. (laughs) Throwing myself on the floor in some freezing cold temple. Um, But at the same time, I have to confess that I do feel very ambivalent about all this. Um, When I'm in those cultures... Um, or when I have to go and see someone about something in our <coughs> party i 'm happy to go along with it, but if I have no other reason to be there i don 't miss it in the slightest in fact, i have no real you know, urge to go and um, go and go to a monastery or a temple, although funnily enough, and this is a bit of a confession, i suppose a couple of weeks ago, I went to a Catholic mass um, and a reason I did was because we had a couple of friends from Australia and one of them was a Catholic and he wanted to go to a local mass, so I went and we figured out where it was. And I thought it was a wonderful thing, actually. I really enjoyed it. It was wonderful to be in a space which had I been mean, in where I live in France, these churches are as old as this one here. You know, that for hundreds of years on Sunday mornings Pete, the community has come together <laughs> a lot of them strangers to each other, in order to celebrate something higher, if you wish. And um, I'm not a Catholic, I don't believe in much of the Christian doctrine at all, but nonetheless there's something very powerful about being in that space with strangers uh, celebrating something outside the everyday concerns of your day-to-day life. So, again, when I said yesterday that I thought of monasticism as a very good training program, um, and we find this today in Thailand, we find it in, with Thich Nhat Hanh, who's now introducing a five-year program of monastic training. And that's how I justify it to myself. That's what I got from it, was a certain range of skills, of learning, of practices, but the problem is, as soon as I start looking at it in that way, I have reduced it to secular ends. It's become a means to an end. It's got a finite span. I'm a monk for ten years, and do my training, and then I can put that aside and get on with my life. So in some senses, I've already compromised what is distinctive about the monastic uh, body namely that it's something that doesn't really change. I'm utilising it for my own ends, or maybe the ends of being able to teach meditation. But it's no longer an end in itself. And I think a similar thing needs to be said about the use of mindfulness in healthcare. I already touched on this before, uh, but perhaps not clearly enough. Um, When you use mindfulness in healthcare, you do so um, in order to treat a particular pathology. Uh, It might be depression, it might be um, dealing with pain relief or whatever. And of course, for the people who suffer these things, uh, these uh, illnesses are often what is all-consuming in their lives. That is the great matter of their life at that time. So I'm not in any sense seeking to somehow diminish that in terms of some higher values. Um, Obviously, uh, there's an enormous benefit to be gained that can have a transformative effect on your life at a very deep level. Even though you're doing the meditation completely outside of a Buddhist or a religious or an ultimate concern type environment. But nonetheless, the mindfulness is being used as a means to an end. It might be, as is often the case nowadays, that people discover that when they do mindfulness in healthcare, it doesn't just resolve a particular (coughs) health problem, But it also provides another perspective on their life as a whole. And this is something that I've observed, I think many of my colleagues have observed, that pretty much every retreat that we lead uh, now in the West, uh, there'll be a certain number of people who've come to it because of the experience they've had in doing mindfulness for health-related reasons. And a certain percentage, it seems, uh, discover, through the practice of mindfulness, another way of looking at their lives. Uh, a A capacity to step back, to see themselves from another point of view, to not be so caught up in or entangled in the rush of thoughts and feelings. And this is not just, therefore, about uh, solving a health problem. Serendipitously, it affords a way to contemplate what, what, what might be their ultimate concerns as to what life is all about. And what this is doing is that it's now bringing into the practice environment of Buddhism people who are drawn to the Dharma not because they've read a book on Buddhism or they've seen the Dalai Lama on TV or they like Buddha images, but because they've had a first-hand experience in their own lives that has been transformative. It's a very different starting point. Very different. And I think that's a very healthy development because the you know, the, 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 the commitment to the practice is coming out of an experience rather than you know, an interest or a knowledge or a, a fascination with ideas. But there's also, I think, a shadow side going back to monasticism. Uh, monasticism might provide a very uh, serene, a social environment to <coughs> reflect, to reconnect with higher or deeper values but also we see through the history of Buddhism monastics tend to uh, assume a certain authority on the basis of their role in the wider community in other words um, in a monastic situation uh, the monks or the nuns usually they're monks are the ones who have the final word on what Buddhism is about, um, both doctrinally, in terms of their religious or spiritual understanding. Um, if, having been a monk, you then disrobe, you don't just, it's not just a question of changing your outfit and growing your hair, it's also a question of no longer being afforded any uh, authority. Uh, independently of how much you might have studied or meditated or learned or how gifted you might be in teaching, from one day to the next, you don't have a role anymore in that environment. So monasticism, and I think we see this also in, in Christianity and in the church and the powers of the church, is also quite often uh, a way of uh, holding on to power and not uh, allowing... Uh, That power to be somehow distributed or shared more widely in the broader community. Now, that might have worked quite well in traditional Asian societies, but I think today it's a very questionable um, attitude. So, again, this brings us back to something like uh, the Protestant Reformation where there was a rejection of the authority of the priest and the priesthood. And some of the forms that have emerged in the Protestant cultures of Europe, uh, I think, are possibly quite suggestive of how we might uh, develop a more secular form of Buddhism. And one example that, again, someone posted up on a note um, is that of the Quakers' And the Quakers um, have been a very effective um, religious movement uh, in the West, Um, and yet one that is completely without any priesthood at all. There are no priests in the Quaker Church. That every member of the congregation is considered a friend, and you meet as a community of friends. That's why they call it the Friends Meeting House. There's no person up the front with funny robes on who's got special authority. That each person within the sangha, the community, the friends, um, will speak if the spirit moves them. In other words, there's uh, there's a real democracy at work in this community. Um, Sometimes I've explained, I've voiced these appreciations to Quaker friends, um, and they say, well, that's all very well, but you don't have to attend our business meeting. (laughs) (laughs) Where you get the same, uh, you know, have to arrive at consensus. It takes a lot of time. It's much easier to have somebody in charge tell you what to do. But I do think that possibly... Um, allows us uh, uh, a sense of what kind of model a secular Buddhist community might evolve. Uh, Something perhaps along those lines. But it's not just a question of getting rid of monasticism or being critical of monasticism. The real question is how do we replace it in a way that doesn't uh, compromise its function as a collective space of higher value. And that, I think, is the real challenge. Uh, I do feel that any kind of religious or spiritual tradition needs some sort of framework, community framework, some sort of ritual framework, within which to um, stand publicly uh, in a space together for what really matters in one's life. Now, to some extent, as I've already mentioned, um, this is kind of what we do here on a retreat. Albeit temporarily, we are gathering together in a space in which we are um, choosing to behave in a way that's quite different to our ordinary lives. We put our secular life on hold, as it were, for a week and we adopt a schedule we do things like live in silence we listen to talks we sit in meditation and in doing so we move into a different kind of time perhaps a sort of timelessness and I suspect that the value of these retreats is not reducible simply to how good our meditation is at any particular sitting. I think what's going on here is actually the the forming, uh, the, the coming together of uh, a sangha, of a sense of community, albeit in silence, in which we are silently celebrating something unspoken something unspoken, but something that is probably for each of us in our own ways of great value. And we're willing to put up with the discomforts and the people who irritate us and so forth and so on because there's something else that matters more. So, again, this sort of further complicates perhaps what we're trying to... Articulate in this word secular. It's, it's not as simple as it sounds once you start unpacking some of these uh, dimensions. So let's go back to the, um, the passage we looked at yesterday. Um, so in other words, coming back now to trying to find what are the, the grounds or the foundations for rethinking the Dharma from... You know, rethinking it afresh, let's say, as a way to find um, a language and a practice that can respond and can work with the kind of secular world in which we live. So this is the Buddha's um, account of what he woke up to. And I'll read it again, just so we can uh, be reminded of that. He said, This Dharma I have reached is deep, hard to see, difficult to awaken to, quiet and excellent, not confined by thought, subtle, sensed by the wise... But people love their place. They delight and revel in their place. It is hard for people who love, delight and revel in their place to see this ground, conditionality, conditioned arising. And also hard to see this ground, the stilling of inclinations, the fading away of reactivity, stopping, Nirvana. Now this uh, twofold ground that appears in this text um, is, is very much in a way the I think the starting point. Um, we can also understand ground Um, as something like rationale. The word tanna in Pali doesn't just mean ground, that's what it literally means, but it also means something like reason. Now, that's maybe not as strange as it sounds. In German, for example, the the word for reason is grund, ground. And we say in English something, we might object to someone's behaviour and say, well, what are the grounds on which you're saying that? What are the grounds that give you the right to say that? What are the reasons? And I think in some ways, therefore, um, what what, what this word ground is getting to um, is not just the sort of metaphor of the place where we stand, perhaps a place where we stand more truly and authentically, in other words, standing on the ground of the condition, conditioned life itself, the, the passing and the arising of life itself, conditioned arising, uh, or even the ground of nirvana, the ground of this non-reactive space. That's a rather static way of thinking of ground. But we might also think of these grounds as reasons. Uh, The reasons why, what gives us a reason to do what we do from this ground. A rationale. Because things are impermanent, because things are conditioned, this means that we can change. In other words, the reason for our ability to undergo some transformation is because everything is conditional and changing and fluid. That's the reason we can change. And the other reason we may be able to change our lives is because um, it's possible to dwell in a non-reactive space of mind, one that's not determined by greed and hatred and so on. And that is what allows the possibility for living in the world um, not conditioned or determined by those impulses and reactions. That's, so, nirvana is also the rationale, the reason that allows us the possibility for living differently. It's somewhat resonant, uh, reminiscent of the use of the word logos. Um, Logos for the Stoics was actually um, equivalent to God. It was was the the rationale of the world itself, the reason of the world, which was then picked up also in Christianity, where um, in the beginning was the word, was the logos, the, the, the reason, as it were. But as I mentioned yesterday, The challenge, I think, the Buddha faced um, was how to translate this rationale, this reason, this ground of conditioned arising on the one hand, nirvana on the other, how to translate that into a way of life. In a sense, he had stumbled across two very uh, uh, important principles, let's say, reasons, grounds, that had not yet found a way to uh, articulate them as a way of living in this world. And I think that the next step in his teaching is this move from uh, the principles into a form of practice. And traditionally, this practice is uh, expressed in this formula, the Four Noble Truths. And according to the uh, tradition, the first teaching he gave after his enlightenment was the uh, teaching to the five ascetics in the Deer Park at Sarnath in which he presented the four noble truths uh, the truth of suffering, the truth of the origin of suffering the truth of the cessation of suffering and the truth of the path that leads to the cessation of suffering. And on the basis of that teaching um, he, uh, the first of uh, his disciples, Kondanya, uh, then understood what he was talking about. Uh, It says that his Dharma eye opened. But um, I think there are considerable difficulties and problems uh, in this particular formulation, the Four Noble Truths. The... um, Scholarship that has been um, done in recent years um, has cast considerable doubt on whether this was, in fact, his first discourse. And more importantly, on whether, in fact, the idea of noble truth was um, original uh, to his uh, teaching. Uh, There's a text that I've often uh, quoted in these talks uh, by a a scholar called K.R. Norman, who's a philologist. In other words, he's a specialist in the language of Pali and other languages of that period in India. And his analysis of of, of the first discourse of the Four Noble Truths concludes... In the original version of this sutta, the word Arya satcha" noble truth, did not occur. Um, Again, the argument for that is slightly technical and I don't want to go into it today. But it does actually, I think, raise a very uh, important point. Namely, that rather than present The world with a set of truths the Buddha was actually concerned with presenting his audience with a set of tasks so we might talk of four noble tasks rather than four noble truths and this is um, quite explicit in the Conclusion of the first discourse itself. And I'm going to paraphrase slightly because the wording is a bit technical. But at the end of the sermon, uh, the Buddha says, It was not uh, until my knowledge and vision were entirely clear about the twelve aspects of the four, not four noble truths, but the four. I could not consider myself to have attained a peerless awakening in this world. Okay, now that sounds in itself not very helpful. But what it is pointing to is uh, when he talks of the twelve aspects of the four, that refers to the fact that each of these four truths, quote-unquote, are tasks to be recognised performed, and accomplished. To be recognised, performed, and accomplished. So he he understands his awakening not as having reached the truth or even truths, but he understood his awakening as the result of having practised and accomplished a set of tasks. And the first sermon describes those tasks very explicitly. What's curious is that um, in much of what is presented to us as Buddhism, we know about the Four Noble Truths, and we can possibly even we know them by heart. They're so widespread. But very few people are aware that each of those truths is also a task and what that task is. And I find it strange that that aspect of Buddhist teaching has been somehow, not exactly forgotten, but marginalized. It's been put to one side. It's not, it didn't really get developed in the way that the doctrine of the truths got developed. The problem with speaking in terms of truth is that um, you very easily, perhaps unavoidably, enter into the realm of belief. In other words, the Four Noble Truths become four propositions that, as a Buddhist, you're expected to believe. You're meant to believe that life is suffering, that the origin of suffering is craving that the cessation of suffering is the cessation of craving, and the way that leads to the cessation of suffering is the Noble Eightfold Path. And what we don't often notice, or we just just sort of treat as somehow natural, is that each of those truths is presented as a, a proposition, in other words, a sentence. With a subject, a verb, and an object. It's a claim. It's saying, life, subject, is, verb, suffering, predicate, or object. Craving, subject, is, verb, origin, of suffering. In other words, we're given uh, logical sentences that we can either accept as true or reject as false, Or, of course, we can remain agnostic and say, well, I don't know, maybe. But the point in, uh, once Buddhism mutates into becoming a religion, it tends, like most such movements, to develop what's called an orthodoxy. In other words, a set of core, non-negotiable beliefs, acceptance of which is considered uh, essential if you can then, in good faith, call yourself a Buddhist or you have a credo in Christianity. It's the same kind of thing. But if Mr. Norman is correct and the word noble truth was added in later, that kind of undermines that whole view that the Buddha's teaching is not actually founded on believing in a certain set of truths, even noble truths, that that's a a, a mindset that we could loosely call metaphysical. In other words, these are metaphysical propositions. They're making very general claims about the nature of existence, that it's suffering, and the reason for that is because of craving if you want to get rid of suffering, you've got to get rid of craving. And here's the way to do it. Eightfold path, get rid of craving, bingo. You've got rid of suffering. (laughs) Now, um, I suspect that the most orthodox Buddhism uh, operates within that paradigm, within that mindset. And so what... um, uh, I'm interested in doing in terms of getting back to the beginnings and starting afresh uh, will entail dropping that mindset altogether. I don't think we need to believe in truth or noble truths uh, as central to what Buddhism is about at all. Now, this doesn't mean, of course, that the Buddha didn't use the word truth. He did. But what is, I think, rather curious here is that when you run a search, and now with all of these texts online you can do this quite easily, if you run a search through, let's say, the Samyutta Nikaya, the Connected Discourses, and you put in the word truth, To see how many times it occurs and where it occurs, Um, I did this. I did it on my iPad. There's about it comes up about 500 times the word truth, but of those 500 times, about 450 are in the phrase four noble truths. So, if you put all that to one side, then ask, well, how is the word truth being used? Independently of Four Noble Truths, what you find in most cases, not all, but in most cases, it's being used to refer to the virtue of being truthful, to speak the truth, to be honest, uh, to agree with one another, to be loyal. Truth is a virtue. And um, we have recently found that this is how it's used in the edicts of Ashoka, the rock edicts of Ashoka, which were carved about 150 years after the Buddha's death. And when Ashoka, in one, in means, the, the sixth pillar edict, was it the second pillar edict, I can't remember. Um, uh, he says, "What is the Dhamma?" and he lists a bunch of virtues. He says it's dana, which is generosity. Um, I can't remember them all. They're about four or five words. But one of them is a truth. The truth is here not being understood as a truth or the truth. but truth is as a virtue, as a way of speaking, a way of communicating. And there's a sort of echo of this in Theravada tradition, which speak of the ten paramis, the ten perfections. And one of them is satcha parami, the perfection of truth. Um, Also in the Jain tradition, one of the five precepts in Jainism is called satcha, truth. So in other words, we have here a use of the word truth that is pre-metaphysical it's not truth in the sense of uh, what is the case with the world actually the truth but rather it has to do with leading a truthful life and again in English we use the word true in very many different ways, we say for example um, he's a true friend Um, or as I mentioned already, this word, tatagata, a true person, as we find in Taoism, the true man in Lin Qi, the true person of no status. Now, true here is being used in a quite different sense to the truth. It's being used as a moral quality, as a quality of integrity, of transparency and of honesty. And I think what happened, and this is a bit speculative, is that what started out as a moral virtue slowly developed into a metaphysical idea, the truth. So, in going back to the earliest sources, as best we can, we, the, the notion of, of, of understanding the truth as being what Buddhism is about falls away altogether. The need to believe in certain statements as being true falls away. That we arrive at an ethics of truthfulness on the one hand and on the other hand we arrive uh, at a practice that's not concerned with um, enlightenment as an understanding of the truth, or the ultimate truth, but an understanding of enlightenment or awakening as uh, the completion of a task, the performance and the completion of a task. And there are four tasks, and I'll list them. So instead of the noble truth of suffering, the noble truth of the ending of suffering and so on, we simply have suffering, dukkha, as something to be comprehended. (coughs) Suffering is to be comprehended. In other words, suffering presents us with a challenge (coughs) to do something. And and what it is to be done is what the Buddha calls parinyā. Literally translates something like fully knowing. Fully know suffering. Comprehend suffering. Embrace suffering. That's the point. Whether or not life is suffering is frankly irrelevant. And you can, and I'm sure some of you have probably been in this argument with friends, you know, someone who's a bit suspicious of Buddhism thinks it's a pretty odd thing. Well say, say, wait a minute, you, you people believe that life is suffering, right? Yeah, you know, all life is suffering. What do you mean by that? What about I was very happy the other day. <laughs> and then the rather sort of superior Buddhist repostate of that is Yes, but that's not real happiness. <laughs> <laughs> real happiness is Buddhist happiness, basically, is what, <laughs> what I said. Um, I think this is very, um, very arrogant, and also not remotely helpful. And you get drawn into a, a sort of argument as to you know, why it is that everything is suffering. You, know, some, you, you could make a good case for it if you wanted. But the point is, I personally feel you're just going off on a wild goose chase. It's irrelevant. It's completely (coughs) irrelevant. What matters is how you deal with dukkha from moment to moment, how you relate to it, how you respond to it. That's what matters. In other words, it's a practice. It's something to do. And it's not something easy to do either. It's very challenging. The second of the tasks is to let go of reactivity. To let go of reactivity. Now, the word that's usually translated, uh, that I translate as reactivity, is tangha, and that's usually rendered as craving. Um, And that's not incorrect. But um, the problem by using the word craving um, is that it's much too strongly associated with just desire. And, of course, in the Four Noble Truths they say craving is the origin of suffering. Craving is the cause of suffering. There's all kinds of problems with that. Um, One is that craving is more than just desire. Craving also includes uh, hatred in other words you know, wanting, uh, you know, wanting to get rid of something uh, craving is in a sense a kind of generic term a kind of catch all phrase for what I think in English is best captured by the idea of reactivity now, there's a couple of reasons why I think that's the case First of all, because craving, um, or tanha, is called the samudaya. Now samudaya is almost invariably translated as origin. And that's where we get craving is the samudaya, the origin of suffering. But actually the word samudaya doesn't really mean origin. Uh, It means literally uh, the arising, Uh, the uprising, is how one translator terms it. Samudhiya is what comes up, what rises, what happens. And that is described as tanha, craving, or reactivity. Reactivity is what rises up in response to an encounter with the world or with another person. It's the instinctive um, rising up of uh, attraction, aversion, indifference, uh, jealousy, pride. It's what the organism does when it impacts an environment, to put it in rather more neutral terms. In other words, we are reactive creatures. You might have noticed. that when something happens, we react. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's simply how we are uh, built, how we are conditioned, how we have evolved, that when we encounter a situation, we react to it. We don't necessarily crave it, Uh, Craving, I think, doesn't really work so well here. But what does happen, and we observe this very clearly in meditation, is that when we sit down, we try to focus on our breath or on our object of meditation, that's actually often quite a struggle because we're constantly finding ourselves reacting to other things. Things we remember, things we want to do, things people said, uh, something that's going on on the retreat that we don't like or that we like. And the distracted mind uh, is basically the reactive mind. And we so easily get caught up in this. And again, it's not accidental, I think, that in the jargon of psychotherapy, and we often say, you know, you have to be attentive to what comes up. There's a lot of stuff coming up for me in my life at the moment. Now again, I, I think that language is useful. That, that we're constantly having to deal with what's arising within us. And we're not choosing what arises. We're not saying, hmm, I'm a bit bored now. I think I'll have a bit of desire. Yeah, let's let's generate some desire. You might, you know, in a very forced situation, do that. But the fact is, you don't have to bother because it happens all by itself. (laughs) Whether it's attraction, whether it's aversion, whether it's whatever it is, it, it just happens. It comes up, and it's called also Mara, the demonic. If we switch now to a kind of mythic language. What's interesting in the dialogues between the Buddha and the devil, Mara, is that Mara just shows up. It says, and then Mara appears. Mara just sort of walks on stage. And this is somewhat similar too to an idea from Jung, who describes the neuroses as autonomous complexes within the psyche. Autonomous complexes. In other words, um, a neurosis, let's say, some sort of pathological worry, is not something you choose to have, it's something that has you. And and it really becomes, if it's too strong, um, actually distressing and causes you to feel ill. But you can't just switch it off. It rises up, it takes hold It runs the show. And something similar, although not necessarily as a pathology, occurs pretty much throughout our our days and months and years. We're constantly being assailed with stuff that comes into our mind and starts trying to run the show. And we often don't notice this because we're letting it run the show and we are the show. So off we go. Sounds great. Then when you, for whatever weird reasons, decide you want to just stop and see what's going on in your mind and you sign up for a meditation retreat, you suddenly realise in a very vivid way how you're being constantly bombarded with stuff. And it's not easy to just be with that as these meditation teachers so blithely tell us just let it go, just watch it Um, yeah, nice idea but the reality is actually rather different Um, my Tibetan teacher once said said, "You you go into a room full of people meditating and you think they're all incredibly peaceful you might have had this experience just sitting here you just can't get anything together at all and you, so you open your eyes and you look around and, <laughs> <laughs> and you think, well they can do it, I can't. And then my teacher said, but actually, if you were able to look inside any one person's mind, it would be like a boxing match. <laughs> that was the energy he used. So the, the, the second of these four tasks uh, Is not to believe that craving is the origin of suffering, (coughs) which again I think is a very very difficult thing to demonstrate or prove. Frankly, doesn't make an awful lot of sense. Is to recognise that whatever, when some, when, when this stuff comes up, the task is to not buy into it, or the word that's used is pahana, to let go of it sometimes translated as abandoned, but that's a little bit too strong. To let go of that. In other words, to not allow it to take over the show. So can you cultivate a still, quiet space within which all of this stuff is still happening, but you're not being drawn into it? The words the Buddha uses, again, concerning Mara, he says we get... We get hooked. We get Mara has, is like a fisherman with barbed hooks and he's constantly snagging us and then reeling us in. Or Mara is like a a, a trap put out for deer. It gets you and you can't, and then you're stuck. So, in some ways, the the, the challenge of this practice is First of all, to actually embrace what's going on, to accept what's going on, to be able to say, yes, this is the experience I'm having right now. There's no need to want it to be otherwise, to be better, to be worse, it's just what is happening. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. That's your life. Where you might be able to make a difference is not in changing the actual givenness of experience, but in how you react to it. And again, the reactions are also natural. The attraction, the aversion, all of this will happen automatically due to your background conditioning, etc. But the point of of freedom is to not buy into it is to allow yourself a still, calm attention that sees what's going on, but does not identify with it and think, oh, this is me, I'm angry, I'm lustful, or whatever it is. As soon as you make that identification, you're kind of in its grip and off you go. Now, of course, sometimes that is the appropriate thing to do. I mean, we react, for example, with fear because there may be a threat to our lives. It's a pretty good idea to pay attention to that. It's a warning signal. But what we're doing in meditation is just stepping back in order to find a space whereby we can make those judgments with greater clarity. So this idea of letting go of just being with what's happening allowing it to play itself out is the second of these uh, tasks that is very much at the heart of what we do when we sit and when we walk and when we practice mindful awareness. We will have to stop there and tomorrow we'll continue going on to the um, the the next two of these tasks, but also I'll try to um, <coughs> spell out in hopefully in a practical way how these tasks uh, could actually be uh, performed. So if we can just remember today, embrace what happens, life, and let go of reactivity. Thank you.